Ali Shouten is one of the youngest female writers and producers at Paramount+. Plus. She is the showrunner of the iCarly reboot. The show's revival focuses on the characters' adult lives and is an accurate depiction of the social, cultural climate that the viewers of the original iCarly can identify with as we all have grown up together. Ali Shouten, welcome to The Creative Process. Thank you for having me. Tell us a little bit about your journey and how you came to be running your first show now, iCarly. Incredible challenge. This all came about during COVID. Just what are the seeds of that? <laughs> yeah, you know, a piece of cake. <laughs> um, I mean, this has been a dream for a long time. I was writing little plays and musicals and notebooks when I was a kid, like most writers, I think. Um, and yeah, it, it's something that I think since I knew this could be a job. It's something that I really wanted to do. And I studied playwriting in college and came out during the summers to do internships in LA. And as soon as I realized that's a possibility as a career, uh, I, I got really excited about it and moved to LA right after graduation. I worked in a cupcake shop for a couple of years. That was like the height of the cupcake craze. Uh, and then I went to grad school at USC for screenwriting and just kind of chipped away at it. And I think I got the offer for my first staff job five and a half years after I moved to the LA to the day. <laughs> it was like my, my half birthday. Um, and so, yeah, it, it took a while, but every year there was something that was encouraging enough that I just felt like I couldn't quite give up. And so how did you get your foot in the door? I mean, I imagine it's really about just continuing to try and fail until people just kind of pity you. I think is part of no, I mean, it, it's, I took a pitch out with a production company, uh, didn't sell it to their studio. So then they sent me off and I had to go find another production company. I started working with the Tannenbaum company on that pitch. We didn't sell it the one place that we didn't sell it to uh pivot which i don't think exists anymore uh was like if you come back to us with the same uh, with the same team but with this idea we'll buy it we did they didn't buy it. <laughs> and then the tana moms got young and hungry on the air and that was my first staff shop so just continuing to fail with them <laughs> was even then they said, yes, we love Allie for this, but there's no job. And then it was, okay, there's no job, but the showrunner will meet you. And then it was, there's no job, but he really liked you. And then eventually kind of got in there. But in, in part, I think that interview went so well because I was told there was no job. So there was no pressure. I was like, I'm just meeting a cool person and chatting about his great show. And, um, and David Holden actually worked on iCarly season one. And we worked together on another show as well, Mary Happy Whatever. So that's become like a career long relationship uh, off of that. There's no job, but so I guess the lesson there is when there's no job, still take the meeting. <laughs> For behind the scenes people or in front of the scenes people, there might be another better fit, but they're keeping you in mind. So if, I think if you make yourself memorable, I think a part of it, so much is about relationships, um, yes. the work you do, but also being able to spend a long time in rooms with people. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I mean, you, you have to have the writing to back it up. I mean, that's, that's the initial thing. I, I, for the first season of iCarly, I read about 400 submissions, at least the first five pages of them 
Uh, and I just didn't want to leave any stone unturned. So that's the main part of it. You have to be able to write because there's going to be people that need to be convinced that you have to be on the staff that aren't in your staffing meeting that aren't your friend or that. So you have to have it on the page for sure. But yes, those relationships are super important. And, uh, you know, having to spend long, long hours in a room with someone, you want them to be someone you can at least tolerate. <laughs> yeah, because then you're bouncing ideas off each other and then things come back, you know, it's always, you know, two head, three, four, five heads are better than one. Exactly. <laughs> but if you're just uh, butting heads against each other, it's not going to be. Yeah, I'll take a good attitude over anything else any day. <laughs> but again, it all started, the people I met with to see how their attitude was, were the people whose scripts I liked the best. Yeah, exactly. Life is not separate from art. And so in terms of this road uh, towards comedy, was that always clear for you? Did you always gravitate towards that? Do you have like some touchstones of comedy, some that, you know, shows you always admire, you know? Yeah, I mean, I, uh, yes, definitely. I, I mean, it, it's been sort of surreal doing all this with Nickelodeon Studios because I was such a Nick kid, you know, salute your shorts, Clarissa explains it all, all of that stuff. I mean, having Christine Taylor in an episode of season one was so dreamy. <laughs> it was really cool to have that full circle with Hey Dude, a show I love so much. And um, we had Melissa Joan Hart direct a couple episodes in season two. I, I mean, like Childhood Alley was singing. So those were the shows that I grew up watching. And like many writers, I wanted to be an actor originally um, and just wasn't really connecting with the roles that I was up for. And so I would go in and try and do like male monologues or comedic monologues. And then also I was kind of a nasty person when I was acting, I was like super competitive. And then I joined a sketch comedy group my first semester of college and it just didn't look back. I mean, it was really incredible to get to work with people and be so collaborative. And it's it was so similar to what ended up being what being in a writer's room is. And I found that I was just as happy when a sketch that I wrote went over well, whether or not I was in it. So it just really, that was the thing that kind of clicked in of, I like myself better. I'm, I'm a nicer person. And I think I'm a really good writer, but I was a fine actor. I don't think I was going to win any awards for that. So just that was the pivot, but it was always, comedy was always the thing that really made my heart sing. That's, that's the area I feel like I can, that my voice gravitates toward. You know, it's interesting. I can't imagine, cause I don't know at what age you are going into acting and that's always a challenge. You know, I imagined, you know, growing up on camera which is something that's right at the, the heart of iCarly is like in some yeah. ways we're all sort of like little child actors, I guess we're all growing <laughs> yeah, up on now, camera. yeah. <laughs> Oh my gosh, if, if I'd had TikTok as a kid, I would have been all over that. <laughs> my parents probably wouldn't have let me, but <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And that was something in updating the show that was really exciting because it, it's right there. It's now she's in a sea of content creators, right? That it, the original show was this really unique wish fulfillment-y thing where it was like, I can't imagine being able to do a web show. And now everyone can, we've got our phones and it, it's a, it's something where, how do you cut through the noise? It's a very different question. And it's interesting because I always feel like that's one of the great challenges in life is how do you maintain innocence through maturity? 
And I think that's always been the case, but we have these added digital nuances and different languages and just having to be so self-aware. So it's really something that we have to like all consider how do you grow up when you're, you're feeling so you're so everyone's so self-conscious or at least aware of one's image. Yeah. I, I think that's, that's such a good point. It, it really, it's created a whole new set of challenges. And often I think parents can't relate to those specific challenges because they weren't, you know, thinking about having kids of my own. I'm like, how am I going to, I don't even know how to use half of these apps. And it, it's a, it's a new set that these that these kids are facing and but it's also an exciting opportunity there is somewhat of a democratization of content creation to some degree i think it can be overemphasized because at the same time you need an expensive phone and you need internet access and those are things not everyone has access to but overall i think that democratization is a good thing of course it presents new opportunities for cyberbullying and all of that so yeah it's it's complicated but i think it's allowing for creativity to come forward in a new way, which is a great thing. Yeah, well, I think that intelligence will always push through and find a way to protect itself. Like, I'm sure that you're very, you have to be like always aware of things, just that little bit more alert and thinking about, oh, is this influencing me? Is this manipulating me? And I guess, but then having children is thinking about putting up those protective barriers. For I think, you know, it's interesting. I don't mean to bring in like some of these topics, but we're having some conversations uh, recently with cognitive neuroscientists, like the one who runs the lab at MIT. And they're talking about how, our brains are not I'm not going to get all serious but how our no I want to know I'm curious <laughs> fully um adapted to the technologies that we use you know and the distractions of it all and so mm-hmm. I like the way that I know that that's not you know it's primarily it's like an entertainment show but it makes us reflect on it and how you know how we grow up in the presence of you know constantly being watched but these other um, elements of the distractions as well yeah and and how we deal more in the second season with how your online persona and your real life persona sometimes can't help but be at odds with one another. You know, I think the first episode back, we get into how women are treated, how women in relationships are treated online. And in a later episode, we deal with how women are or are not allowed to express their anger online as content creators. And so it it's, it's something we talked a lot about in the room of that fracturing of self and that I think might be what you're getting at a little bit that even in a goofy show, that's very lighthearted. That's very entertaining. Hopefully uh, took your words. Uh, It's, it's something that we, we do discuss and we try and sneak little tidbits in there about that. Yeah, well, it is thought provoking. Yeah, the fracturing of self, because sometimes one would be portraying images of oneself without even like, no, not really being in touch. You know, when you're growing up, you really don't know yourself. Like our brains are still forming until, I guess, until we're like 25 or something. We don't mm-hmm. really start settling then. So yeah. it's strange the also the online footprint that one can have without even realizing. Right, <laughs> and there's an authenticity of the stuff that kids are making because they don't know any better. They might not have developed fully into themselves, but there, there isn't that self-awareness that can be a self-censoring. 
Yeah, so it helps us reflect on that. And I think it's interesting also, you know, going back to the original iteration of iCarly, that there's this audience that grew up, you know, around the same age as, as Carly, the character, and then had this chance to you know, actually remember their childhood through the show. So this is kind of an interesting thing. And all this came about, and I think perhaps solidified the audience a little bit more because of during COVID, maybe that's the time when we wanted to reflect on our childhoods too. Absolutely. And for me, I was a little older or, you know, a little older um, than the iCarly generation. But for me, what attracted me to this show was it was beginning of COVID I was completely isolated and I, I was doing the, this Zoom open mic every week that my friend Autumn had organized. And my now fiance and I were quarantining separately because we just met in January of 2020. And we were like performing for each other over this Zoom open mic. And I would read little comedic essays and he would perform songs. And it was this connection through online creativity. And so when iCarly came up, I you know, I just thought this is incredible. Yes, people want to revisit their childhood and what a way to do it is through what we're doing now, which is connecting online. I mean, and, and having to find creative outlets through this little laptop screen. <laughs> so it felt so timely and also just so personal to me. I think that people could get together as, as you were, uh, you know, festivals were canceled. A lot of things were canceled and people yeah. found you know, new ways, new ways to break through. And, and so I think it was kind of like a little master move and then they came through and, and you have your show. And so Catherine had a question a bit about the uh, diversity of the show. Yeah. So I grew up watching iCarly and, you know, it was one of my favorite shows and just thinking about kind of the culture change of like our whole entire society, but especially within the show, like we've never had a character who was addressed herself as non-binary and, you know, was, you know, the introduction of her character, how there wasn't any coming out scene per se, like it was a very casual thing. And just like, how was that orchestrated is kind of my question. Is there someone who is non-binary, who helps write the lines and how do you avoid any type of like stereotype that might be associated with a role like that. Yeah, I mean, so I I think what you're you're getting at is is Harper's character is pansexual. Um, yeah. So I, she she is uh, she's not non-binary. She uses mm -hmm. her pronouns, but I I think that's this is what you're getting. Yeah. At. <laughs> um, you know, it it felt like we're never going to replace Sam right? That's a really unique character that's beloved and we don't want to, like it, it would be, it would be a disservice to the show to be like, well, now she's got a new best friend and that one's over and we're never going to mention her again. Um, I don't think that's the correct way to do it. I don't think that's respectful of the fans, but I do think what was great about Sam's character is that she was someone who was very adventurous, very blunt, very, um, opinionated and so some of those traits we did want to incorporate into Harper's character and so that was kind of the the core of it starting there okay who who would be a good foil for Carly who we felt like maybe was in a little bit of arrested development maybe a little bit sweeter a little bit you know we, we based a lot of things on Miranda who I I don't know if you guys saw the video that people are freaking out where she says fuck and like the internet is exploding about it because they're like, I just can't imagine her. I mean, she's got a little edge to her, but overall she's like, you know, very, very adventurous, very sweet. And 
we kind of wanted someone who was a little bit more, yeah, opinionated and pushing her out of her comfort zone. And so in developing that character, it felt like just very realistic. I mean, we're in a major city that's very liberal, that's very creative, that this would be someone who would be a stylist who would not necessarily need to have a coming out story because maybe they aren't from a background where like, she might've come out as pansexual when she was 13, you know, <laughs> like that, that probably didn't, didn't need to be, you know, that Carly wouldn't be someone you needed to like sit down and hold her hand and say like, I've got something to tell you that this is someone who'd be like, oh, cool. You, my roommate brought home a woman or <laughs> my roommate brought home someone non-binary. And, and that's not something that like we have to discuss. And, and, you know, Lacey's talked a lot about how there is a place for that in a lot of shows. And it's really important to have art like that, but it's also equally important to have shows where it's not as you're saying, this this big deal coming out scene, that these are people just existing joyfully and living their lives and pursuing their dreams and relationships and, and that that's equally valuable. So I think we just felt like with the nature of the show, that was the opportunity we had. It's, it's such a joyful show that why not show someone really just existing and dating who they want to date and who they connect with. Yeah, definitely. I saw a lot of like tweets about it and, and just praising the fact that it was such a oh. casual introduction to this character and her sexuality and just everything about it. Like I, we gotta give it up for her. She really yeah. inhabits that character and and in a way that's I think really special. Yeah, I actually that's my um, other question I want to ask. How did you find Lacey and how are you like this is her role? Um, well, you know, I mentioned my fiance. Um, I was, I don't think I've ever told this story. Hopefully I'm allowed to. Um, so we were looking at a lot, a lot, a lot of auditions. And Lacey was someone I think who was offer only. She'd been a series regular before. And so that means that she would go straight to network testing. And so we were looking at a lot of auditions. And then my casting director, Melissa, sent me a list of offer only people. And I, I clicked on Lacey's reel and Aaron was making dinner and he heard her voice and goes, is that Lacey Mosley? Uh, you have to get her. You have to get her. Oh my gosh. I'm obsessed with her because he had done stuff at UCB. And so he was really familiar with her as an improviser. And he was like, that's, that's your person. Like you, you've got to get her. And so then she and I met to discuss if it would be a fit. And then she went to network testing and just, you know, she was incredible, but, but she was someone that, that like, it was, you know, you've heard of hearing someone's voice through the phone and like signing them to a record deal. Right. Like it was almost like that, where he just, he heard her voice through my laptop speaker while he was <laughs> listening to music in the other room. And, and it was, I was suddenly so excited that, you know, she was, she was there. So, and then, yeah, she and I met and just like immediately clicked and over zoom, <laughs> of course, <laughs> everything was over zoom. <laughs> yeah. Also just a ton of feedback, like on Twitter yet again, just about how perfectly she embodies that character and how, you know, it, it's not like a force or anything and just how important that is today. And growing up with the show, like really that is our reality. And there is a lot of backlash on some issues like this which is a, a really tough thing and and I I commend her and Jaden for just like doing the work and keeping their heads up high and and just they they've done such a great job despite people who are 
you know, spew some really vile stuff at them. And I also, you know, I think it helps that she and Miranda are genuinely friends. (laughs) Like they're really, they really have a friendship. So just from day one, I felt like it was very natural for them to do those scenes sitting on the couch together because in between takes, they were doing that. (laughs) They were just sitting on the couch talking. So that I think helped as well. Well, it's amazing to think how much acceptance has been gained and how much ground has been covered in, in the last uh, yeah, 10 years, 15 years. It's hard to know when the transmission first was. But so when you were forming um, the Bible, the your showrunner's Bible, what were some mm-hmm. what was the planning process? And is it, you know, is it this big architecture with comedy is a bit different? I mean, is that the the main overriding thing? You you do have the architecture. I this came together so quickly that we were doing a lot of that with the writers in the writer's room and like backfilling that, honestly, it, it was, I have these post-its up and I have, I'm looking at the calendar from, from 2021 and it says Carly on February 8th. It's like, let's talk about who this woman is now. And yeah. And that's something we had been working on before me and Jake Hogan, who I wrote the pilot with, But it was something that because it came together so quickly, I mean, literally we had an air date as we were hiring, right? I mean, it was, it was just like, we were straight to series. And so it was, you know, we were working on the pilot up until as we were shooting it, as is the case with most things, but we shot the pilot as part of the series order. So it was a, it was a script to series situation. And yeah, so we, we have that architecture, but I don't, I have other projects where I could like hand you a document and it's very neatly done and there's charts and color coded and all this stuff with this it was a little bit more like let's all talk about this as a group Miranda was very involved Jerry Nathan Lacey like we we really got the opportunity to include the actors in a lot of these character arcs that usually it would just be one writer sitting alone at their desk doing you know as part of the pitch process long before it ever got there instead we got to really kind of go on this journey with them as a room And also describe something that a lot of shows have gone through, but this only had a COVID life. Only had a COVID life. Yeah, we we did two seasons actually in one calendar year. We started January 20th of 2021 and we finished on the 21st of 2022. So it was it was all COVID all the time. We went through so many strains. It was lovely. When we started there, we didn't even know there were multiple strains <laughs> and uh, we finished with Omicron. <laughs> so uh, I'm glad. I, I think you've had the happiest COVID experience. I have, I've had an amazing I'm sorry. COVID. Yes. It's really, it's been special. No, it, it was really hard, but I think going in as a COVID show in some ways helped because we didn't have to pivot. We knew going in in every interview we did for everybody on the crew, how are you going to keep the energy up on set? How, what can we do um, to make this fun? You know, even shooting at Paramount, we looked at a few different spaces. There was a a daycare with a big outdoor playground space. And one of our producers was like, this is where we're shooting. We want this daycare. So we had this big outdoor playground space where people could sit and eat lunch together safely distance, but still getting to see each other's faces and talk to each other. And that was just our space. So it, we just, we went into it with the mindset of what can we do to make this less 
soggy, basically, than it inherently is going to be. And, you know, I, I think that actually did help that it was COVID from the start because we just, that's what we were used to. And I'm looking forward to hopefully getting to do a season three where we can all, when we can have a wrap party, when we can, you know, have an opportunity to really all sit together and inside and, and have a big buffet and hang out. And I think that'll be great. But I, I also think we've, we've done the best we can in terms of COVID challenges. And I mean, Zoom rooms are really tough. In the second season, we were able to do a smaller masked in-person room with the people who felt comfortable going in because we generally split the room anyway. And so, and that was just great. I mean, I felt like my energy was so high when I got to be in person and people really came alive when they got to be in the room and, you know, on set producing their episodes. It's just, it's just better. Oh yeah. I mean, it's that energy. It's interesting. I mean, I don't know, were you able to bring in some talent that were from, you know, other regions? Maybe that's another thing that was maybe a bit possible. We did with specific hires from the original show. So, you know, Reed Alexander is based in New York. In season two, we had granddad Shay. He's also in New York or Reed might be based in Florida. I don't, one, one or the other. And so we, we were able to fly them in with a COVID test at like every step of the way. (laughs) And then generally we did local LA hires for the rest of the cast. And then, you know, by by the end we were testing every single day. (laughs) So with Omicron, we were like, we just got to finish this out. Yeah, well, it's I'm I'm it's uh it's laudable that you were you know you keep your spirits up and you have this the enthusiasm is really necessary well, to, to make it through. Yes, it's the best job in the world. I mean that that's the thing is that it, there's so many things about it that are tough, but at the end of the day, I get to get paid to make jokes and tell a story about a young creative woman. I mean it's. What could be better? (laughs) I'm very lucky. While talking to Allie, it's evident that her energy and her enthusiasm played a major role in the process of creating this show. COVID-19 has been an obstacle for us all, and it's incredible to hear what was accomplished during these times, especially the process of making a show, which sounds difficult enough to start with, without adding the aspect of having to social distance. This show has gained much attention, not only as being a successful COVID project, but also as a rejuvenation of childhood memories. For myself personally, iCarly was a staple of my childhood. I was able to see two funny and intelligent girls who were around the same age as me be able to create something by themselves for themselves. Sam and Carly were the original content creators who helped us to understand the depths of our creativity. When the show ended, it was at a point in time in our lives when we were all just starting to go off to high school or other forms of higher education. And at this point in time in our lives, we all just knew we were to go out and figure out who and what we wanted to be. And we had this background of creativity because of shows like iCarly. Now the reboot is here at the perfect time in our lives. The cast has grown up and the show has matured with us and with society. We see the cultural relevance of the media and how jobs as influencers and media personnel are realistic and achievable. 
In addition to this, we see Carly making new friends, like her roommate Lacey, the super cool, sexually fluent best friend. This reboot provides representation that wasn't in the original and is so relevant to society today. This revival hits home as we can see our lives play out alongside our childhood influencers and are brought back to a time of simplicity, but now with the understanding of the complications of the real world and what it is to be an adult. In terms of your comedy style, just like the joke making process, well, this is just a m- mysterious to me. I mean, I know there's an arrest of <laughs> yeah. but you have things that your strengths and things that you work for. And there's almost even like an architecture of a, there's an architecture of a show, but there's also an architecture sort of a, a joke. So what are some, I don't know, things that you always draw upon or, you know, what do you, how you get your inspiration for that? I mean, I, joke writing is a muscle. It's not the thing I was good at coming in on my first season on Young and Hungry. Um, I remember I was doing really well in the room. I I had people being like, yeah, keep it up. You're doing great. You're a really strong staff writer. And then we got to punch up, which I thought given that I'd been in punch up rooms before and I'd done well, I thought that would be the easy part. And David Holden even said, you know, staff writer's job is joke writing. That's what it is. And I've been doing really well with the story and stuff. So I was like, all right, this is, this is going to be a walk in the park. And then I just remember my first joke that I pitched on like page two of the script we were going through and the new Monopoly pieces had just come out and it was this incredibly long joke that was convoluted about the new Monopoly pieces. And I just knew like four words in, oh, this is going to die. This joke, no one is going to laugh at this joke. And, and like, it didn't get better from there. And I just I didn't know how to do those quick, direct, multi-cam jokes. And I remember asking people like, what does that mean? What's the architect? How do I do that? And then I would say by the end of the three seasons I was on that show, I was like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm a joke writer. I can do this because I was constantly having to do it. And you just, you get faster, you get better, you get the cadence of it. You start to realize that you can rely on other people in the room that it's not about, it's not competitive to be like beating each other's jokes and building on them. It's actually helping and it's a fun process to do it together. I also like to just sit with my script and a glass of wine and handwrite jokes on paper copy of the script. And I think that's like any way that you can kind of get the juices flowing a little bit. And yeah, it's like lifting weights. It truly is you just have to practice. You just have to make yourself do it. And it's scary. And you just have to know that sometimes you're going to pitch jokes that don't work. And sometimes you're going to pitch jokes. You're like, this is insane. This doesn't even make sense, but you pitch it and the whole room laughs and it becomes a meme. And like, it, it just, you have to go with, what do I think is funny? And then you'll get the response from the room that'll guide you in the right direction in terms of how you need to shape it for the show. Don't pitch stuff just because you're like, well, last week the showrunner picked a joke that was like this. Pitch what you think is funny and and you're, you'll naturally build that muscle toward joke writing. I think you can't overthink it too much. And exactly. if I got the recipe down right, you sometimes a glass of wine, plus timing, plus... Coffee, <laughs> wine, whatever you need. You know, as I'm drinking my coffee right now. <laughs> yes, the drink of just um, But I remember someone said that the first time like it comes out, that's the rhythm of it. it. It's yeah. Sometimes you, you shape it. And then sometimes there are moments I can think of 
where someone will pitch something. I'm thinking of a specific joke right now. I just don't want to, it's like from the second season. I don't know if I'm allowed to say it, but I think of a specific joke right now that um, our script coordinator Jacques pitched and we were rewording it and rewording it. And then I just went, wait, everyone laughed really hard. Jacques, how did you originally say it? And we just went back to like, why? Yes, you can make it shorter and you can make, but it, sometimes it just is exactly what just popped out of his head in that moment. And, and other times you can, you know, the, another rule I, I will say is you want to land on the joke. So if you have a longer sentence, if the joke is buried in the middle of it, if the funny word that you're going to end on, if the punchline is buried in a paragraph or in a sentence, try and move it to the end. That's my one piece of joke writing advice. Land on the joke. <laughs> yeah, don't be too clever after that. Make it yeah. so have a pause there. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> well, it seems like like easy words, but it's it's hard to land it. It's hard to do like it. You said, can't overthink it. You can't explain it. You know, I, I wish that you could because I wanted it in that moment. I wanted these other writers to tell me how to write a good joke, but really it's just what you think is funny. And then you'll naturally start to adapt as you hear what's getting responses from your fellow writer. And I think like, this is something you don't need to be in a writer's room to practice this, you know, in your writer's group, punch up each other's scripts, pitch jokes for people and see what gets in. I, I think there's a lot of ways that, that you could, you could watch TV shows and then like, here's a joke I would have done. You know, you can, with your partner or something while you're sitting on the couch, like that might be really annoying, but you would be getting good practice. <laughs> yeah. So, so many artists get their start from talking back to their TV, doing their own, not being satisfied with what they see and just like jumping in there themselves. Um, so I know how I many did, divorces do you think I'm going to cause now from aspiring comedy writers who were like, Ali Shouten told me I have to pitch jokes at the screen. It started at the beginning and then you just keep on doing it, it becomes your career, as you know. Um, yeah. Uh, so you're talking about funny because some, you know, it's a kind of, you know, it's a kind of innate thing and then you can build it. What are some of the you know, funniest people you know or that you, you know, watched when you were growing up and thought, I want to do that? Yeah. I mean, my older brother, who is like a serious lawyer, he really shaped my sense of humor. Um, we'd watch the Simpsons together. There was one point when we'd seen every episode except the lemon tree episode. And we would set up our VCR to tape the reruns. But then the one time that that one, that episode was on somehow the VCR messed up and we didn't get it. Like we were obsessed with the Simpsons growing up. And that was a huge thing. We had the CDs and the books and the, just everything about that. And, and just making him laugh was the best thing because nothing I did was cool. He's five years older. So growing up, I was the annoying little sister. So if I could make him laugh, then I was doing the only thing that mattered. Right. And so I think that was something that really shaped my sensibility, even though he's, he's not a comedian professionally, but we just always shared that sense of humor. And um, since we were kids, like little, little kids, like before I could talk, we just start giggling together. My mom called it being in cahoots. Uh, when it was time to go to bed, we both just start making each other laugh. Um, so that that was a big part of it. And yeah, Skylar yeah. Shouten, comedy extraordinaire. <laughs> so do you think he missed his career? Or are you saying that law is a kind of performance? <laughs> he's good at everything. He's like, he can draw, he can play music. He can, He's good at everything he does. So I, I think he let me have this one. <laughs> 
He's just one of those annoying, talented people. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Seriously. I mean, I remember he was like, I think I'll try out for the school play on a whim and got the lead, you know? And I was like, this is my thing. <laughs> um, yeah, it's interesting where that confidence comes from because some people, like it's, I think like performance or writing is per- performing behind the scenes. You know, how did you build your confidence? We were talking a little bit there about being a woman showrunner, being a young showrunner. Who were some of those supportive figures for you or that, you know, showed you the way and how did you find your voice in that way? Yeah, absolutely. I, um, well, I mentioned David Holden who, who came on during season one to help out, which was great. And he's always been an amazing mentor to me and someone that I just admire as a person and a showrunner. And it helps that he was my first showrunner. So that was great. You know, I also, I just come off of working on Diary of a Future President, which is Alana Pena's show. And she is also just, she's fantastic. And she talk about like keeping the energy up during COVID. You know, we were, we went from the only writer's room I've ever heard of that got to be in a high rise downtown. I mean, we got to take like a glitzy elevator up with all these lawyers and suits. It was very cool. And to being on zoom and, you know, one day to the next and just kept the energy up and really delivered a great season. And and so I talked with her and, and just kind of got her advice. And so I, I think both of them were really helpful, but really so many people have taken a chance on me and given me opportunities that I just, I try to pay that forward as much as possible because I, Austin's TV gave me my first shot at producing a show called All Night and then brought me back in for iCarly and kind of gave me this opportunity to to run that show and, or not kind of, they did. (laughs) And so I, I think it's just about having faith that people can do it and that's a big thing I've learned from my mentors is just give people the opportunity to shine. And if they don't, you'll fix it. Like all of our scripts go through so many drafts. It doesn't really, it, no matter who wrote the first draft, that why not give people the opportunity, give assistant scripts and, and promote them and, and just let, let them have the opportunity to succeed or fail on their own merits um, and, and not based on like a hierarchy as much. That that was probably my biggest takeaway in that that's been my biggest advantage that people gave me that chance. Oh, yes. And I think that you've had, um, just to go a little bit more into detail about this sort of, I know it's not entirely open process, but a lot of people are contributing scripts that I think, just tell us a little bit more about that. I think that's a bit unusual. Yes, it it is a bit unusual. You know, I, I see stuff on Twitter all the time of like looking for a writer's assistant with five years of writer's assistant experience. And I understand that like when you have a show, you don't want it in anyone's hands, but the absolute most seasoned and best person. But I don't think that the term seasoned writer's assistant should exist. Um, I, that's not why anyone is in that room. Uh, They are not passionate about taking notes till late at night. They are not uh, excited about getting your coffee. They are not, you know, that's not what people are doing it for. So I think it's important to see them for the writers that they are and give people opportunities. And, you know, whether it's pitching jokes or writing a script, if the opportunity is available, um, I just, I, I think often the best drafts come from people who 
it's their first opportunity doing it because they don't want to mess that up. You know, they're going to work so hard for you. And so I, I do think that it's an advantage. And it's also an advantage of the rooms I've been in. I've seen rooms where it's all hands on deck and a good idea comes from anywhere. And I've seen that work. And so I just don't, I don't know why you wouldn't do that. You have untapped resources if you're not letting your staff writers speak, if you're not letting your writer's assistants pitch. I mean, obviously you need notes, but if you're not saying what's the end goal for you and how can I help you get there, then, you know, and if it's someone that really doesn't fit with your show, then let them go on to another show where they might be able to rise up through the through the ranks a little bit. I, I just think that's, um, again, I've been handed opportunities and I understand that I've had a lot of privilege in that. And so I just, I think it's only fair to pay it forward. Um, and it ultimately makes for a better show. I mean, I, I think some of our best jokes, our best episodes are, are coming from people who in some rooms might not be encouraged to, to speak. Yeah, I mean, it's the other end of that is true. You want someone who's seasoned, but you can also sort of be tapped out. You kind of need to have, like, it's like a field. You can, you have just to sometimes- them. Let them be a staff writer. Like, it, it's just- I, I mean, we had a, a very seasoned script coordinator in season one, and then I promoted him in season two. And you'd think, I mean, he wrote a script in season one, and like, but not having to focus on anything but being a staff writer, I mean, he just was incredible. Like, he was doing so much more than he did in season one because he had so many other duties in season one. And so when he could just focus on writing, he was amazing. And, and like, I didn't know. And only by giving him that opportunity did I get to see that. And, and so I'm like so lucky. And now he's told me, he's like, oh, I will always have your back because you gave me that first staff job. And I'm like, what a great person to have on your team is this super talented guy. So I, I think it, it just, it, it so far, it has not been anything but positive to just give people chances, you know? So do you have the kind of the hundred hour work week? <laughs> I mean- we have long hours for sure. And it's, it's tough. I mean, multicam is that that's multicam. We are rewriting the script every day of production week. We need alts for stage, you know, alternate jokes in case something isn't landing. We have a lot of cooks in the kitchen that we're getting notes from. We also, you know, everyone says like at the end of the day, perfect is the opposite of good, but you always want to make it the best you can. It's long hours, but it, it's a pretty, it's a pretty fun gig, I think. <laughs> and, and how do you draw on, uh, you're talking about having alternate jokes. How do you draw on your improv experience and, and what, to what level is their improvisation allowed? And... Well, my improv experience is not great, but we do have some great improvisers on set. Like we will give them a take. We give the actors a take once we've got it, where we'll say, hey, let's do a fun pass say whatever you want and like often we end up using that because then they're just beating our jokes but in terms of the alternate jokes we'll have a packet with us on stage and so I'll go through before the scene and I'll underline the jokes I like and sometimes I'll even change it before we shoot one take I'll say like oh this was a straight line and now this joke is hilarious let's do it let's get in there um and so yeah that's I don't mean to get into like um, statistics, but I'm wondering like how many jokes you would have to have for, I don't know. Cause I don't, you don't count it when you're experiencing it, but Typically people say three per page, three per page. Wow. It's in a multi-cam on average, what you're going to have. 
Wow. But I mean, sometimes it's more, sometimes you have an emotional scene and you might not have any on that page, like typically three per page. That's interesting because when you mentioned the emotional scenes, going back to the, these characters have really matured, gone into their adult lives. Some things are still sorting out, maybe not feeling totally settled. Yeah. So um, how did you approach that? And because there was a few things on the menu and you had to make those choices. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's all in reflecting where 20 somethings are now. You know, that's where we get story from is, is looking into often our own lives and saying like, what was I going through at this age? What was I going through in this time? And it's relationships, it's career. It's, it's all the uncertainty that comes with like, am I the person you were talking about neuroscience earlier? These are 27 year olds. So they're just crystallizing those selves. Wait, is this the self that I want to be locked into place as, is this, is this it? Is this who I am forever? Is this the job? Is this the person? Is this the apartment? Is, you know, all of those situations that are actually really ripe for both emotion and comedy. I think there's this nice sweetness and, and innocence still, because they're still young people. And I think that that's kind of hard to find. I think that things have become more and more cynical. I mean, you have some kind of, you know, wisecracking characters, but it still has this nice innocence. And I think we don't see enough of that. I actually was looking at old episodes of uh, Dick Van Dyke. Can you believe it? Oh, wow. yeah. <laughs> it's oh just my God, a, Jerry, just... And you were like, is that Jerry Trainer? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, and it's just like, you have to go a bit far back to see this sense of innocence. It's just not the same. I don't know. I'm getting nostalgic now. I mean, I'm a pretty earnest person, so I, I'm not super cynical. I also think just this show is, it's joyous. It's positive. It's, again, there's a place for cynicism. And we do like to take those opportunities to hold a tiny mirror, like a compact mirror maybe of the society. But for the most part, our show is about having fun. And so I, I think that combined with just the idea of we don't typically do a like, oh, we all came together and saved the day at the end of every episode, but we do end on at least a neutral note, if not a positive one. Just I think that's the nature of the show and, and what it's always been. And what do you feel your responsibility is as someone writing stories about young people, the way as we know, children also are being raised by their devices, are their imaginations and relationships being formed in some ways, you know, mirroring what they see on television and film and, and whatever their media is. And so what kind of responsibility do you feel putting out those positive stories? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's it's not about positivity so much as it's about like not condescending to people because kids tend to watch in the age bracket above them. Like a lot of 14 year olds who didn't grow up on iCarly are watching our show and they don't want to be talked down to. They don't want to be told what they should be thinking. They just want to feel represented or feel like, oh, wow, one day I could grow up and like live in a cool apartment with my best friend and, uh, across the hall from my rich older brother. And there's, you know, and, and make my dreams come true. And, and I think it's, the responsibility is just to tell stories that are modern and compelling and representative, less so than than positive. I, I don't know if that distinction makes sense. It, it's just about meeting people where they are and not where we think they should be and not trying to teach them a lesson. It's more just trying to give them what's going to make them happy and that they can turn on. I don't mind if we're a laundry folding show <laughs> that, you know, that people want to unwind, that people want to feel seen and people like Catherine, you know, can feel like they, the characters grew up with them. 
and that these are their stories, but also younger people can watch and it feels aspirational and they see themselves, whether that they see characters that look like them, that have lifestyles that reflect theirs, that, you know, that they might want to grow up into and that that's something for them. Yes. I guess I shouldn't say positivity. I should, I should say oh. not putting, there's other things that are a lot of violence or a lot of, or maybe has negative depictions of sure. whatever, or as you say, lots of groups of people. It, it is a positive show for sure. But I think when we're crafting the stories, we're not thinking like what lesson is there? It's more like what thing that is real in 2022 are we representing? I think it's important for people to see stories where people are, they value their friendships, they maintain them over time, they care about each other. I mean, just having that is pretty important. I think that we have enough negativity. So I as you think about the future, as you reflect on some teachers or life lessons that were important for you, as you think about the importance of the arts, what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? Oh, that's a great question. You know, I always come back to advice that um, I worked for Ed Solomon, the screenwriter for three years, and he always said, write what brings you joy. And I think that can extend to anything, whether that's making a TikTok dance video or researching neuroscience. You know, if that's the thing that brings you joy, then you are the right person to be doing that, that that's for you. And trying to fit into a box of what you think the market is going toward creatively or trying to do something because you think it's what other people want you to do. Yes, there's an audience and yes, there are writing assignments you'll be pitching on and you'll have to propose papers if, if you're a scientist and, and all these things. But if you don't find that kernel of joy for yourself in it, then it's not, it's not for you. It's not, you're not the best person for, for the job if, if you can't find something that you can really express yourself in there. Yeah, I think that that's so true. Don't force yourself into anyone's molds. Find your own mold. Exactly. Make your own, make your own shape in this world. So thank you, Ali Shouten, for sharing your sense of joy, telling stories about <laughs> friendships in this time of COVID, technology and how we live now, and maintaining innocence through maturity. Thank you for adding your voice to the greater process. Thank you so much for having me. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews Producer on this podcast was Katherine Ritter. Digital Media Coordinator is Phoebe Browse. Winter Time was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, or submit your own creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at Thanks for listening.